The writer's strike, the actor's strike, the FTC investigation. What does all of this have to do with AI? Everything. From South Dakota Public Broadcasting, it's Friday, July 14th, and this is In the Moment. Coming up this hour, we've got a tech radio segment ready to launch. Amos Asap and Jeff Litterick join us. We'll explore the world of artificial intelligence regulation and the way it impacts our lives and even our reputations. We've got Milkweed East River, Milkweed West River, and somehow they also get together. We'll dive into some milkweed hybridization research and a National Science Foundation grant that will help it go further. Plus, a little fresh tracks, that's later in the hour. We're broadcasting live today from SDPB's Kirby Family Studio in Sioux Falls. I'm Lori Walsh. You're in the moment. News is first. A new study compares two policies through which employees could report child abuse. One of them is chain of command reporting through the organization. The other, direct reporting. Fran Sippel is a psychologist and one of the co-authors of the study, Frequent listeners might recognize her from the last time she was on our show as co-host of Shrink Wrap, the podcast. Dr. Sippel is co-owner of Northern Plains Psychological Association in Aberdeen. She serves on the Mandatory Reporter Task Force at the Center for the Prevention of Child Maltreatment. And she's joining me from SDPB's Tom and Danielle Amon Foundation Studio. That's at Northern State University in Aberdeen. Dr. Sippel, welcome back. Thanks for being here. Thank you for having me, Lori. I appreciate it. So we've all heard stories of Jerry Sandusky from Penn State is one that you've covered in this reporting. There are other uh, challenging and heartbreaking stories about ongoing child sexual abuse, for example. Um, Tell us what drew you to uh, working with your cohorts here on this study. So I'm kind of a research nerd, and I'm a mandatory reporter, and I've been studying this subject for about 10 years and really kind of looking at what are the laws that protect mandatory reporters, because really we are the heart of child protection. We are the ones that hear the stories and are tasked with reporting it to the best of our ability. And so I think it's it's really important that we kind of look at that process and what are we doing in South Dakota and how can we make it better? Yeah. So there are two different ways of thinking about this. One is it goes through an organization, through a chain of command. The organization knows the nuances of this. Um, The other is go direct to law enforcement, for example. And you found that there are a lot of problems with institutional reporting. Lay those out for us. So nationally, after the Jerry Sandusky Sandusky um, event where we know that it went up the chain of command and the higher-ups decided the reputation of the institution was more important than protecting children. Nationally, then everyone started looking at why do we have institutional reporting and overall everyone got rid of it. There's only three states in the nation right now where it's still legal. Unfortunately, South Dakota is one of them. However, okay, so our law basically says that at hospitals and schools in South Dakota, it is legal to report up the chain of command. That isn't uniform in our states. Some of our schools and institutions have said, no, we're going to just do direct reporting, which is great because I think that's a valid form of reporting. If a child comes to me and they're telling me what's going on with them, I am in the very best position to pick up the phone and report that to CPS rather than 
telling my supervisor who then has to report secondhand. But the lack of uniformity makes it really confusing for mandatory reporters based upon where they're working. Um, you know, in this in this sort of um, environment, I have to do direct reporting. However, in this other environment, I have to go up the chain of command. Um, the uniformity is really important. It can make a difference as well with how a case unfolds, correct? Because if you, you know, maybe you tell your principal, then your principal talks to the child, and then the principal tells the administrator, and the administrator talks to the child. Well, by the time that child is having a conversation with Child Protective Services or a trained forensic interviewer, the story could really be muddied somewhat. Tell me why it's important to eliminate the number of times a story might be told or a victim might be asked to share their story. It's re-traumatizing the child. It's hard enough for them the first time to get up the courage to report. And so you really want to lessen the amount of times they tell their story because kids are kids and sometimes tiny little aspects of the story can change, not because they're lying, but because it's trauma. It's hard to remember with precision. So we want to make sure that it's the purest form of the report once it gets to the forensic interviewer. The less pre-interviews prior to that, the better. All right. So what happens next with this reporting? Do you think it will um, make a change in a state like South Dakota that does not uh, follow what a lot of other states have gone to as far as direct reporting is concerned? South Dakota has taken one step to change that, and that is if you report up the chain of command and someone has a question, then the mandatory reporter who initially made the report has to be available. It's not good enough. Um, so the Center for the Child for the Prevention of Child Maltreatment has been working on this. Unfortunately, funding is an issue. So we do have a committee that is very um, committed to improving our child protection laws in South Dakota. Um, most of us volunteer our time to do it, but we need funding to keep going. And I think that really looking at those laws and changing them is a very worthy cause. It not only protects the child, it protects the mandatory reporter who can actually be retaliated against for making the report. Right. I want to say one more thing about that before we let you go, which is it's not just about the kids. It is about the mandatory reporter. What kinds of retaliation are we seeing that the mandatory reporters fear, experience, and might have a chilling effect on? Based upon our research, the most common forms are harassment and having your identity released to the alleged perpetrator. By far and away, that is the most common form. However, mandatory reporters can be sued, they can be reported to their ethics board, they can get fired. There's a whole host of other retaliatory things that can happen. I am not saying this, please do not misinterpret that I want to discourage reporting. We need to do our jobs and report. But we also need to be educated about the risks involved with that and, and prepared. More information is found on our website, sdpb.org slash news. We've been talking with Fran Sippel, a psychologist and one of the co-authors of this new study about uh, direct reporting and how it could prevent child abuse. Fran, thank you so much for being here. We appreciate that. I appreciate you. Thank you.
You are listening to In the Moment on South Dakota Public Broadcasting. I'm your host, Lori Walsh. Well, South Dakota is bisected into two parts by the Missouri River and also by the milkweed. The western half of the state is home to one species and the eastern half to another. The plants do meet, however, in the middle. Dr. Carrie Olson-Manning is Assistant Professor of Biology at Augustana University. She studies the hybridization of the two species in South Dakota, and her research will get a boost thanks to a $1.2 million National Science Foundation grant she just received, and she returns... $1.2 million. We all take a big breath. Oh. <laughs> she returns to our Kirby family studio to talk about that. Welcome back. Thanks for being here. Yeah, thank you so much. Congratulations. Yeah, it, it's, un, yeah, unexpected. I was very lucky. It was very, very exciting. How important is grant work to scientific research throughout this, this the span of a scientist's career? You know, people can do a lot of good work without a lot of funding, um, but if you can if you can manage to get one of these grants, it can just really accelerate the pace of the research and the the scope and how how many people you can reach with it. Why do you think this was a successful application? What is it about this research that you're going to be doing that caught the attention of the National Science Foundation? Oh my, um, you know I think it was that uh, we're looking at this really interesting question about what happens when two species meet and hybridize. Um, the region where they hybridize is like right on this really interesting uh, climate gradient between like, you know, the east and the west, as you just mentioned. So I think that the, the most in, like the most interesting thing about it is that we were like right in the right place at the right time, like with the right system and questions. Yeah. Yeah. So what happens next? Your summers look a little different now. Yes. Um, so I, I have the guaranteed funding over the summer and I can hire a technician and a postdoc and just so many undergraduates to help out uh, learning about these milkweed. Um, so, yeah, it's going to be it's going to be a pretty intensive five years. Yeah. Tell me a little bit about some of the questions that you're asking as you plan for five years for sabbatical time, for how to you know invite other people into the research what kinds of uh, research planning are you doing? Yeah, so uh, we're really interested in what happens when these two species of milkweed come together. They're adapted to super different environments. So in the West, it's really dry, really high light. In the East, lots of competition, lots of herbivores. And so when they come together, uh, they make these hybrids, which you know have a bit of each of those genomes. But those hybrids, what are they adapted to, right? Like what... Right. What can those hybrids do? And so that's really our big question is how, what is the fate of those hybrids and how will they affect, you know, the species? Are you seeing this happen naturally? Yes. And then are you going to study it happening naturally or are you going to create it in a lab environment? Help Cre me understand yeah. that. We're going to do both. So we are going to plant some gardens out naturally and measure how those um, species are doing. We're really interested in like the chemicals, um, that the species are making and how those are different and help them adapt to their environments. But uh, we're also going to grow some stuff in the greenhouse and m manipulate some of those climatic variables to see is it the soil, is it water, what light stage is really important for establishment. We also get monarch caterpillars in to see how they fare on the milkweed. So yeah, we can go in a lot of different directions now that we have some extra funding. Does the caterpillar help the hybridization? Are they part of the hybridization, or does that happen without 
a yeah. caterpillar or a, or a monarch butterfly. Yeah, so the monarch is really just a pest on the milkweed. It doesn't help pollinate it. It doesn't okay. help with anything. We've actually done some studies in the lab and have found that the caterpillars grow slowly on the hybrids, especially when the hybrids are little. So maybe uh, the hybridization is not necessarily good for the monarchs, but we don't know that yet. We're not really, right. but like we have some early indication that something weird's going on with the monarchs and the milkweed and the hybridization. Tell me a little bit about, um, I think last time we were on, we talked about this milkweed sort of happening naturally yeah. in, in our in our spaces. Is it native to this area, to both East River and West River? Yeah, b- both of these species are native. So they've been here for a long time. Our genomic studies suggest that, you know, they have maybe met and started hybridizing within the last, it's very recent, but in, in this kind of time span, that's like 10,000 years. Okay. So, um yeah, we're kind of catching it in action. So that brings me to the question of, you know, a changing um, 100th meridian, a changing climate, and the speed with which the planet is warming. Yeah. How is that impacting the milkweed and therefore your research? Yeah, we have some, just some preliminary evidence into kind of get approaching that question. Um, so it looks like there's directional hybridization where it looks like the western species is more likely to you know hybridize with the eastern and then also to spread east and so we we, we're thinking that um, over time with climate change in the 100th meridian shifting east um, that the the western species also is going to shift east so it's, it's possible that the hybridization could help out with that process you know creating more variation Um, but, you know, we just don't know yet. So, you know, one of the things that we're really interested in, in knowing more is, um, you know, how climate change is, is going to be affected or how it was going to affect this, this system. And so, yeah, um, there are declines in biodiversity, there's climate change, all of these things like impact, you know, how these, these species are going to move forward. So, um, yeah. Why do we need the milkweed? Other than we love it and we identify with it, there's an aesthetic element to it for people like me. But from a scientific standpoint, what is its role in an ecosystem? Um, yeah, it, it plays, uh, you know, um, um, I wouldn't say it's foundational in, in an ecosystem. It's, it's very important for a small subset of species that can tolerate the really toxic compounds it makes. Um, but I think from my vantage point, the reason that I'm so drawn to milkweed is that People love it. People love monarchs. Yeah. And so not only do I get to do this amazing research with this really cool system, but I also get to do a ton of outreach and educational things. And people immediately vibe with it, right? They immediately understand that it's interesting and important because people love monarchs and they're so charismatic and they're so beautiful. And we we want to preserve them, right? And so yeah. we want to understand about their host plant, the milkweed. And so... Uh, as a part of this grant, we actually have funding to plant gardens in K-12 schools, and we're actually recruiting teachers now. Um, and so, yeah, if anyone wants to get in contact with me to help out with this research, um, we're hoping to have, we're like, you know, using the expertise of the teachers to develop curriculum that like aligns with state standards right. so that we can, you know, bring students into this native species that is, you know, important here, important for monarchs. And, um, you know, we can learn stuff about climate change and biodiversity and everything from this, from this beautiful system. We protect what we love. We do. (laughs) 
Dr. Carrie Olson Manning from Augustana University in the biology department. Thank you so much for being here with me. Yeah, I appreciate your time. Yes, thank you so much. Welcome back to In the Moment on South Dakota Public Broadcasting. I'm Lori Walsh. Let's get back into these conversations we're having that explores uh, technology, artificial intelligence, and how it impacts our lives. We've got another tech talk for you today. We have talked about the unique place AI could rear its head in your everyday life and the unique ways it might do so. Today, we're diving back into that discussion. We're going to talk about the way chat GPT could be talking about you on the internet behind your back, <laughs> how artificial intelligence could show up in the background of your favorite shows. But also, the Federal Trade Commission and the Screen Actors Guild both have some objections to how this all might be playing out. Amos Asaph is Chief Security Officer from Exigent Solutions in Sioux Falls. He's with me in the Sioux Falls studio. Hey, Amos, welcome. Hey, thanks for having me back. And Jeff Litterick is a Network and Security Architect for the state of South Dakota, is joining us from Pierre. Jeff, how are you? Oh, real good today. Before we get to um, some really big news this week about the FTC looking into um, chat GPT and artificial intelligence, there also is some other news about security leaks and some Chinese hacking of U.S. government email sites. And since you both know so much about that and are fighting the good fight for the rest of us every day, um, I thought I'd get some insight into that as well. Amos, where do you want to begin with this latest story? Well, you know, it sounds like uh, there was a possibility of uh, some uh, his recent history of having access to uh, government emails uh, from uh, the Chinese uh, organizations, whether it's the nation state itself or whether it's just proponents who are inside that. Um, it's really yet to be determined uh, specifically who's doing it. But um, you know, there's, uh, this is an ongoing battle that we're fighting, um, and the government's fighting, and unfortunately, uh, not only this, but the uh, Move It uh, software vulnerability that also allowed some infiltration into government sites, uh, it, it's, a, it's a tough thing to do. And I think as we go forward, uh, we're starting to see more and more of these affecting those larger organizations that we, you know, kind of historically have thought, oh, They've got the best people, and they've got the best software and the best processes to keep things safe. Uh, but we're finding that, you know, really nothing out there is impervious to uh, somebody who is dedicated and actively working on getting in. And so that's starting to be concerning. Um, and from a personal level, what's concerning about that is that it's now happening so frequently that it doesn't make the news quite as much as it used to. Mm. And when it happens to a private entity, uh, it's not necessarily a uh, killer for them, right? It doesn't take the, they don't go out of business. It's one of those things like, oh, that bank got breached. Yeah, well, that's terrible. I guess we'll, we'll uh, have to hope that they do better next time. Um, and so we're starting to take it with a grain of salt anymore, and that, yeah. that could get us in trouble. Yeah. So this just happened to me. I was out in New York City for my daughter's graduation, tried to use my debit card, was rejected. At the same time, I was getting a call from the bank, the number, and hers. So it was more than one. It wasn't just me. I hadn't done anything that I'm mm. aware of wrong. You know, you call, they shut it down. I had someone with me, so I didn't have a, like, immediate financial crisis. And then I went back to business as normal. Yep. Yep. Thanks. Yep. Thank you, bank. 
and you know, and the nice part is, is that um, you don't have a lot of liability there, right? Yeah. They're they're going to take. They care refunded of that for the it. yeah. They yeah, refunded exactly. the charges that were that had showed up on my account as being spent. Yeah, and in a lot of those cases, there's no financial incentive for the bank to do a lot about that, right? Because yeah. it would cost them more money to go after that person or that entity or whoever uh, than maybe they would have. But uh, what you're saying them. is that the casualness with which even I navigated this. Right. Could be cause for alarm. Right. It's no longer concerning. It's no longer yeah. shocking. It's no longer unacceptable. Uh, exactly. Wow. Yeah. Jeff, what do you want to add to this conversation about hacking and, and emails and such based on what Amos said? Yeah. Well, you're going to see more and more of this. I mean, as we're all aware, personally on the internet, it's much easier to impersonate somebody, right? And as we move into more and more cloud, like the email was all cloud based, it just easier for attackers to impersonate people um impersonate you using your debit card or or credit card impersonating you signing on to your email and that's kind of what happened in this case is they were basically found a way to be able to techno technically impersonate whoever they wanted to be able to read their email through the cloud and have access because they no longer had to you know log into a local network or go to into the office and stuff like that so as we become more interconnected this stuff's is more possible, it's easier to do, and it's gonna happen much more frequently. And right now, we're getting tired of the point where insurance is just, like you said, insurance is rated off. It costs more to go after them than it is just to you know, sweep it on the rug and absorb the cost. The problem with that is those costs are absorbed by every consumer in the end, between mm -hmm. transaction fees and all that kind of stuff. Um, the costs are never lost. The banks are not going to lose money over this. They will just pass that liability on to everybody else doing business with them to fees. Um, so, yeah, it's going to be a problem, and we need need to watch it closely so it doesn't get out of hand. So the hackers win, and the consumers end up foot in the bill. Paying for it in the long run. And I, don't, you, I don't want that. And, you know, this is a story <laughs> that, we, that we've had for a long time, right? Yeah. Um, uh, we've, uh, I previously uh, worked in uh, big box retail mm -hmm. uh, where there was some uh, reservation about how far do you take loss prevention. Um, you know, if you right. know somebody who's walking out the door uh, with something underneath uh, their, their jacket or in their purse, um, is the liability that you might get into by stopping them or being wrong or something like that uh, worth the $7 or $15 item that's going out the door? Uh, and so... Again, it was based on economics. The big box store doesn't want to spend out, doesn't want to pay out big money because of liability or other reasons that might happen. There might become a lawsuit, et cetera, uh, versus letting it go out the door. And we're starting to see that here is that, you know what, let's just, let's just uh, take those losses and uh, give them back to the consumer, which is what the big box stores were doing, right? They just jacked their prices up in order to pay for those items they know they're losing. So speaking of, Jeff used the word impersonation, so let's switch to AI. And the writers uh, went on strike. The Screen Actors Guild just went on strike yesterday. Yeah. And the FTC is looking into the makers of ChatGPT for data collection, consumer protection. Mm -hmm. uh, this is a, a new twist in an old conversation. Yeah, so the Screen Actors Guild piece I thought was interesting. Um, went on strike, uh, was it last night, I believe? It was, I think so, yeah. yeah. Um, it, you know, one of their um, gripes is that uh, the extras who appear in films um, may not 
have that as a recurring uh, 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 income anymore because we're able to reproduce those with uh, with uh, artificial intelligence. Uh, I saw an article where there was a very large uh, camera mechanism where somebody sits down in the center of it and they take pictures from every angle with lights from every possible direction so that from a AI standpoint, we can recreate just about any sort of environment that that person would be in, which is simply these pictures that we have of them. And it's very accurate and very realistic. Uh, and so now we can start putting those people in the backgrounds of movies uh, and not have to pay uh, those extras, uh, some of whom make a substantial amount of money. That's how they earn their living. And it's how they get the next role because they had a right. credit in this film and a credit in that film. Now you might get a speaking part. Now you might get a leading part. It really changes a lot of uh, a lot of careers. And they and they wanted to give them two hundred dollars to be able to use that likeness in perpetuity, which wow. was laughable for them. Yeah. Um, so you know that's that's the thing is that it, we've been talking about robots taking our jobs forever, right? But now it's it's not we don't say robots so much as technology is taking our jobs. And here's a a real life example of where jobs will be lost because we can artificially do it with technology. Jeff, we get to decide. We get to we're human beings and we get to decide. <laughs> and th there's a strike. You know, obviously there's uh, federal regulations that, uh, but. But we can't really opt out in some way. So what's, <laughs> Jeff Litterick, this is not a small question. What's the human role in deciding how these things are going to be used? Well, that's somewhat to be determined yet. Um, one of the things right now, especially since chat GPT, is, is the hype is at an all-time level. So everyone is hyping AI mm -hmm. to the extremes, but it has tons of potential, but it's it's going to take time to fulfill a lot of that stuff. So a lot of that stuff is going to have to be over time. We'll have to see. The problem is the government and regulations tend to really lag behind any new technology. It's not AI, any kind of technology. And there's a lot of harm that can happen in between those two, like this, like extras, you know, suddenly um, they don't even need to hire new extras. Once they have a, you know, get a few thousand of these AIs. Why even get any new ones? They can use them forever. They could be using them in 3,000 years from now in movies, right? Uh, what they have their likenesses in, and that's why the actors are striking. Um, you also have a lot of other businesses that are looking at AI to, A, I can expand my business and increase revenue without hiring anybody, or I can reduce staff or get rid of staff by replacing them with AI, uh, chatbots, call centers, stuff like that. Um, AI has the potential to affect how humans live, how they work, how they play, how they're entertained, and their quality of life in, in immeasurable ways. But we don't know all those yet, and it's going to take time to deliver. And we have pressing problems, like chat GPT is under thing, because sometimes it gives false answers. Right. So what's the liability? If your AI tells someone and they commit suicide, uh, because AI tells them, and that actually can happen. You can trick the AI into doing lots of weird stuff to tell people stuff. Um, who's liable? Well, and there's How do you just hold a, a, AI liable for false information and stuff like that. And yeah. these are questions we're all going to have to answer, and will have big impacts on us over yeah. the, over the coming. Years, so. I was just reading an email survey about how many people have asked AI for romantic advice in some way. Again, mm -hmm. they ask it for advice on a variety of things. Well, what if the machine gives you advice? Who is liable for that? What I'm not hearing in this conversation again and again, Amos, it goes back to 
all right, so it's the actors and it's the corporations, but I'm still the moviegoer and I want to see real people. It's the bank and it's the hackers, but I'm still the, you know, the person who wants to use my money at a fair rate and not get, mm -hmm. I don't want to pay for all this extra stuff. I don't want to pay for a big box to, you know, raise their costs because somebody else is stealing things. I mean, the person who loses is, and certainly the actors go out of work or the sure. writers go out of work and that has incredible implications for us socially. But also the audience is impacted by, I don't want to see a movie with, I mean, I don't even like Polar Express when it came out. You know, <laughs> right. they're just people want the authentic. How right. many times have our voices, the three of us talking on the radio, if you put all of it in aggregate into a machine and then say, well, the three of them are going to talk to you every you know, month, send us the questions and AI Amos and AI Jeff and AI Lori will have a conversation. Three of us get to go home. Yeah. Um, and that's not unrealistic. There no. are, there is the ability today from a very small set of data points or, or, or uh, you know, audio from your and I's recording um, that can regenerate, uh, you know, the, the entire English language. Uh, I saw an article about it the other day, or I, I believe it was on CBS, where they're using it for al uh, Alzheimer's patients uh, who are losing, no, it's ALS patients, sure. who are losing their ability to speak. Uh, but prior to losing that, they put their voice into the system, and now they're able to use that system to regenerate their own voice, which for their loved ones is amazing, right? To be able to hear that voice instead of uh, a robotic-type voice that we think of. But back to your question. But uh, it's not saying what they want it to say anymore. It, well, it is saying what At they want point, it to say. At some point, until they lose... Okay, so in this example, let's play a game. Okay. <laughs> so you have this from your father... You have all his voice. And then, you know, he, he dies. He passes away from ALS. I see. For a long time, you were using this as a communication tool. It was wonderful. Now you can say, well, you know, I never, um, uh, his last will and testament is here. Well, now I can say that he told me right. uh, that the farm is mine and that I was his favorite child. And, you know, people <laughs> can just manipulate this in so many nefarious ways. Right. And, and they will. And they will. Because we're humans, and, and, and apparently we, we suck sometimes. We find ways to abuse things. Yeah. Uh, for every piece of technology that comes out that's good, we find a way to abuse it in a way that ultimately, in the end, benefits us in some way, right? Whether you're uh, whether you're getting the farm or you're getting some sort of inheritance, um, even if it's manipulating that information. It, that's really what it all comes down to, is how can I use this technology to benefit me in some way? Uh, and whether that's for a positive or a negative, yeah. uh, that's to be Just want to hear my dad love say he loves me. Maybe he never said it in real life, and now he's saying it. AI dad is telling me what I want to hear or giving me advice. Sure. So yeah. transparency is huge, right? I mean, we Jeff, when we look about what is to be done, we need to know when it's happening. Like you need to know, I need you need to trust that it's Lori Walsh sitting yeah. in the studio having that conversation. And the I, day I'm, it's I'm, not, you need to know that. That's starters. Mm -hmm. What's next? Uh, I'm going to go back in yeah. in time just a bit. Uh, because one of the fascinating things is a lot of these issues you brought up and how we deal with it and how we should respond has been kind of explored before. Uh, one of the best examples, if you go listen back to the, you know, the 60s Twilight Zone TV yeah. series, they explored a lot of these topics of, of AI and robots, a lot of other topics too, but how we will interact in the future, when is 
when does AI actually replace human interactions? And is it a good thing or a bad thing and consequences of it? Um, it's kind of fascinating. We're coming to a future that in many ways they predicted back then and already started exploring the topic. And it's going to change. And one of the things I've already kind of flabbergasted is chat GPT is a, has limits on what it can say because it, it, it says wrong things at times and it, you can trick it into saying bad things. Uh, like I mentioned before, so they've been limits. But what humans have been doing is immediately moving away from Chat GPT to other chat box that don't have those restrictions. <laughs> so in human nature, we're kind of our worst enemy here. Yeah, Amos. One of the things I think is really important and is the order in which we engage the artificial intelligence. So if you're writing a story, and you did this a couple times ago, you know, brought in like ask the ask Chat GPT how to have a conversation on the radio about mm -hmm. like, plan the segment for right. me produce right. the piece chat yeah. gpt and we put that first that we're going to let the the bot write the first draft um why not do it the opposite where the person writes the first draft and the robot checks it or you know provides feedback isn't the whole point that it's supposed to make technology is supposed to make us better but how easily we just give up and say oh well here's your chatbot lawyer and then that didn't turn out very well when the bot <laughs> right. pulls up a bunch of cases that don't exist. Right. But if the lawyer is using their own brain to create the brief and then the machine is checking it and saying, oh, you missed a case, then that's good. Right. But We're it's bad if the machine does it for you and you just atrophy. And we, we go back to human nature, right, where we want, uh, we want our lives to be easier. We want to have to do... Uh, less monotonous work and be able to enjoy other things that we like. Um, you know, specifically, uh, you know, uh, writing ad copy is a really common one now. In fact, um, if you do, if you deal with uh, Chat GPT or any of those uh, models, uh, you start to pick up on kind of the type, the cadence that they use and the way that their phrases and the. It's just start. It's easy to start to pick that out, and I've been able to pick that out of um, ad copy that's either been. Uh, in a newspaper or uh, online, you can start to see what that is. Um, but it's because somebody has to write that article, and if I can, uh, as an editor, have the system write it and not have to pay somebody to do it, or I can have the system write it and I can go to the lake instead, that's just human nature. And, and unfortunately, that's the problem. But you're not going to afford yeah. to go to the lake if you we don't have, have a job. So <laughs> right. you have to split. You have to find that exact. Right. Jeff, how hard is it to find that hairline crack that says this is where we're going to stand? Plus, we have more technology, it, it, Jeff, than we ever did before. My job's not easier. Uh, it hasn't taken. I mean, mm -hmm. it's well. We we have to have a term in, in both security and technology for this. It's called the path of least resistance, right? Um, humans tend to use the path of least resistance. Hackers are known for this. They mm -hmm. always go for the path of least resistance. And when you make something harder, they just look for the next path. Uh, it's human nature to be kind of lazy and to look for shortcuts uh, if possible and try. And it takes effort to get beyond that. So um, it's kind of like moving from chat GPT when it does tells you something it doesn't like because it's restricted, now moving to unrestricted ones, people tend to look for the path of least resistance in almost everything they do. Uh, less effort put in, less money, um, so on. And it really gets back into human nature, and um, a, it takes a society kind of change, a shift, in order to really 
hit the brakes on some of that kind of stuff before it gets out of control, unfortunately. Yeah, so. e- even if even if it's not to our best interest, we find the path of least re- <laughs> resistance. Mm-hmm. So is the path of least resistance, Jeff, when it comes to hacking, I mean, how often is that find a person who will click on an email? Or, you know, is how often is it the path of least resistance for a hacker, a human target in some way? Most of the time. Um, it's, it used to be even easier, but humans are training themselves like you with your debit card and stuff. You're becoming more aware of this stuff. So it's becoming a little bit harder. But if you look at the amount of what we call social attacks, attacks on human beings to give up information or credentials versus technically attacks on zero to exploits, the humans still outweigh by orders of magnitude the technical stuff because they're many times easy to pull off. And one of the things with path of least resistance, not only is it usually easier, it's cheaper. You get more profit by going the path of least resistance. Businesses tend to do it because, you know, it's, it's usually a cheaper way to do it. It's cheaper to trick a human than to spend a lot of money and compute time to try to brute force a password, right? Mm-hmm. In one case, I'm spending a lot of money. In case, I'm spending half a cent to send an email. So, um, and then every time we put in new blocks, Security-wise, new firewalls, new technology to de block and, and prevent that, they just move to the next attack that has the biggest chance of sense, the path of least resistance. They don't try to, you know, necessarily get around what you did and figure out uh, a little way. They just move on to the next easiest, easiest attack method. Um, and and it's just it's just kind of human nature in that way. So let's and close. It, and capitalism is kind of based off of that whole concept too of the path of least resistance. So yeah. So let's just spend the last minute, Amos, talking to people who need a refresher on how to not fall for, for hacks or phishing attempts. What are some of the things that you need to do with your your home network or your business network? Uh, boy, there's there's a lot of things. Uh, so one is, uh, is it something you were expecting? Um, if, if it wasn't something you're expecting, then immediately be suspicious of it. Certainly, you're going to get emails that you weren't expecting that will be legitimate, but that's where you start. Mm-hmm. Uh, two, it, does it have a call to action? Do they want you to do something? They want you to click on something. They want you to log into something. They want you to change your password. They have a, a call to action that they need you to do. Three is a sense of urgency. If you don't have this done in the next 24 hours, we're going to shut off your account, et cetera, that sort of stuff. So those those would be the main things to, to take a look at. All right. I will leave you with a sense of urgency to think about this this weekend and <laughs> to, to slow down a little bit, listen to your tech support people if you have them. We are very fortunate to have Jeff Litterick in peer uh, educating us and training us and to have Amos Asap here with Exigent um, to also spend time with us on the radio. We're real people, not we bots. Are. Jeff, thank you so much. Not yet. Have a good day, all. Amos, thank you. We appreciate it. Thank you. You're listening to In the Moment on South Dakota Public Broadcasting. I am Lori Walsh. Fresh Tracks has new music suggestions for your summer listening list. David Hersrud brings his years in the music industry to a new music conversation with Larry Rohr. They cover releases from Jason Isbell, Paul Simon, Sparks, and more. Let's take a listen. We had a chance the last couple of programs to talk about some music and artists that would be good additions to the Ultimate Music Library. And then I got some notes that said, we've got some new music. And you seemed a little surprised that there was so much new music. A few weeks ago, uh, I was trying to put some shows together, and I'm going through it, and I can't find enough to even 
talk about. <laughs> and then like, you know, spring flowers all of a sudden turn around and I've got more music than I could even hope to deal with. Is that a little unusual though? Because usually you get the releases earlier in the year and people go out and tour the music. We're in a situation right now where there's a lot of acts are not touring because it's quite frankly, it's so expensive. Mm. Well, here we are. And I like the fact that you're starting off with Jason Isbell and the 400 unit. This is his ninth album. Some are saying it's his best. Did you ever love a woman with a death wish? Something in her eyes like flipping off a light switch. Everybody dies, but you gotta find a reason to carry on. He seems like a very prolific and always providing a real solid end-to-end album. And here comes Weather Veins. People are saying that this is his best album so far. What I've noticed uh, Jason was being compared to people like uh, Bruce Springsteen, John Prine, Tom Petty, Paul Simon, Van Morrison, and the 400 unit, which I think is wonderful, was being compared to the Allman Brothers, the, Tom Petty's The Heartbreaker, and the E Street Band. Well, I tried to open up my window and let the light the one thing I wanted to throw in here, you know, because this is called Americana. I got to the Americana Music Association website and was taking a look at it, and I thought it was very interesting. They say it's contemporary music that incorporates elements of various American roots music styles, like country, roots rock, folk, bluegrass, R&B, and blues. So, I mean, there's a wide wide panorama there to take a look at as far as this. Jason is probably at the top of the list right now. Weathervane, I love the album. Earlier, you mentioned Paul Simon, and I was really surprised. I know he's dealing with health issues and so forth. Was surprised that there's something new coming up. He's getting into his 80s, and I think you reach a point in your life at, at that particular time where you start thinking about faith, mortality, he decided he wanted to put together an album. It's 33 minutes long, and it's one song. I've been thinking about the great migration. Noon and night, they leave the flock. And I imagine their destination. Meadow grass, jagged rock. He's pondering faith and mortality whether or not to believe certain things in his life. I've listened to the album a couple of times, and it takes, I think, about that many times to get through it to really, really appreciate what Paul has done here. Okay, Seven Psalms. That's uh, Paul Simon, and it's, uh, it's a little different approach to music, but what would you expect? Uh, you wouldn't expect anything else. The, the group Sparks, I mean, 26th album is coming out, uh, the album, The Girl is Crying in Her Latte. What's that tell us about Sparks? Sparks is two brothers, and I've followed this group since the 70s. It's hard to believe that they've been around that long, are still at the top of their game. The girl is crying in her latte, yeah. The girl is crying in her latte, sad. The girl is crying in her latte, wow. The girl is crying. 
Their music has been described as innovative, brash, funny, eccentric, wonderfully warped, but above all, it's creative. You had a chance to go back through the pretty things, and it sounds, I, I see an element of box set. What's going on with, with pretty things in kind of a retrospective? Pretty things, I started listening to them strictly by accident. Uh, there was a local record store in Northfield, Minnesota that I used to check out on a fairly regular basis. One day I walked in, uh, the Beatles' Help album had just come out. I went in to purchase it, and I was looking through the new releases and found an album by this English band, The Pretty Things. They're kind of scruffy looking. So I bought it without even listening to it. You know, at $2.98, you can afford maybe to buy a couple of albums. <laughs> yes. Yeah. I met this ship the other day. And then to me, she says she stayed. I got this bad, just like a cave. And then we have a little rain. They had a reputation at the time for being quite outrageous, which kind of goes with the name. They also jump from label to label, trying to find the magic yeah. answer. If you think about it, you listen to the music, they should have been a huge success. Yeah. Because one of the things that they were able to do, as music kind of shifted into the 70s, 80s, 90s, even up, up to this date, uh, the pretty things were able to kind of shift the type of music that they were playing and uh, accommodate what, what, what people were listening to. never made it big, which I, I, I kind of find depressing. And so right now this label has come out and they've taken all 13 Pretty Things albums and come out with the complete studio albums, 1964 to 2020. I recommend it highly. 56 Years of Music is recommended for you to give a listen on the Pretty Things, the complete studio albums. Sparks, their 26th album is out. It's The Girl Is Crying In Her Latte. Oh, and when Paul Simon does anything, you got to have a listen, and you'll be listening for about a half hour to Seven Psalms. And hey, all the Jason Isbell fans, Weather Veins is out for a new album for Isbell. And as always, great thanks to our musical guide, David Herzrud. Thanks, David. Hey, thank you. Good listening. When the time is right, was a thing that I can never You can find all the Fresh Tracks conversations on our website. Go to sdpb.org slash music. Well, that is our show for today. We hope that it served you on Mondays in the Moment, Summer with the Symphony with the musicians of the South Dakota Symphony Orchestra. Matt Wiesner produces those for you. Plus, do you believe, I mean, do you fundamentally believe that you deserve money? Rick Kaler is with us. We're going to talk about how believing you might not deserve money can change the way you live every day. 
In the Moment is produced by Ari Youngman and Ellen Kester. Jordan Henderson is our videographer. You can find many of our conversations on SDPB's YouTube channel, and that's because of Jordan. Thanks also go out to our SDPB colleagues in Rapid City for helping our guests feel comfortable there. And as always, to Colton Nicholson for providing such outstanding engineering support. If you miss In the Moment at noon Central, 11 Mountain, and again at 7 Central, 6 Mountain, we are also a podcast. You go to whatever podcast platform you prefer, and you search for SDPB or In the Moment or my name. I'm Lori Walsh. I'm your host and the show's senior producer, and we thank you all for listening. <laughs>